You are listening to an ounce. This is season two, bonus episode one, part three of a three-part episode, personal security, preparedness, and gun ownership. You are listening to an ounce, a podcast providing inspiration, ideas, and wisdom through engaging stories, commentary, and interviews so you can live life better. Hey, I'm Jim Fugate, and it's my privilege to share an ounce with you. This bonus episode is segment three of a three-part episode series on improving personal security and preparedness. If you haven't heard segments one and two yet, you might want to go back and give them a listen. These three episode segments are a recorded phone interview with Michael Faith of Faith Firearms and Preparedness Training located in Western Maryland. In the first segment, we talked about aspects of personal and family security that should be considered whether you have a gun or not. In segment two, we talked about factors that should be considered if you're thinking about purchasing a firearm, including where you are now with respect to your understanding of firearms and your current level of competence, differing laws and regulations and liabilities associated with owning a firearm. In the final part of this episode, we'll look at various aspects of owning a firearm, including how to get good advice on which firearm to purchase, maintenance costs, time commitment, and even lifestyle changes required to be a competent and responsible gun owner. Here's part three of the interview. Well, after considering all of these issues, Mike, as your customer and having you there as a, as a consultant for me, I've decided I am going to go ahead and purchase the firearm. How do I determine which firearm is going to be the best one for me? Okay, it's an excellent choice. And so, first of all, when someone wants to purchase a handgun, trying to make that decision, the first thing I ask them is, what is your application? Because if you want a handgun for personal protection, to keep on the bed stand, if you want a handgun to carry on your person, if you want one for competition, if you want one for plinking around or for hunting, those might that might be four or five different guns there. So, so we start looking about what's your application. So I want to carry peace, okay? Typically, a carry gun is lower, has lower capacity and is a little bit smaller, so it's easier to conceal. Then that kind of narrows it down to that area. So there's lots of great products on the market. You know, Glock makes single-stack guns. Single-stack meaning the ammunition is stacked in a single column in the magazine, making for a thinner profile. So I don't want to start throwing models around, but Sig Sauer, Glock, and a few other ones make uh, very good concealed firearms. Now, if you're not going to carry a gun, for example, in the instance of a Maryland citizen, you're most likely not going to have to get a permit to carry the gun. So don't limit yourself to a single-stack gun with lower capacity for the sake of concealing it. You're not going to conceal it. So I would recommend getting a larger frame gun that has more capacity, okay? So you get more shots. Studies have shown it's almost scientific at this point that trained police officers in a firefight can miss up to about 80% of their shots. So that should be an indication of what's going to happen to you in a firefight. So if I ever have to use my gun to defend myself, I've never done that. I can't duplicate that experience in training. I'm going to anticipate missing my share of shots. So if that's the case, I want more shots. I want more chances to stop the threat. Those are probably the two things you want to consider um, as far as the size of the firearm, okay? Then you can get into caliber, and we could we could spend an hour talking about different calibers. But mm-hmm. the, and, and listen, if I were to take 38 Special, uh, 380, 9mm, 40 Smith & Wesson, and 45 ACP, those four calibers, and using the best technology we have today, which is ballistic gelatin. I were to take each one of those cartridges and fire it out of a, a gun with a 3-inch or 4-inch barrel. 
So we're so we're having we're, we're canceling out. Well, this gun had a six inch barrel, so it had better muzzle velocity. Let's say all the barrels are about the same length. Uh, you fire those into ballistic gelatin, the standard FBI practice, I think, through two layers of fabric and then into ballistic gelatin. And then you look how far did the projectile penetrate? Did it penetrate 12 to 18 inches? And if it did, then it's suitable for personal defense, okay? So we shoot around each one of those calibers into a different block of ballistic gelatin. And then I take those pictures and I jumble them all up and take away the data. And I say, Jim, I want you to point out and label each one of these. Can you tell me which one is 45, which one was 9 millimeter, which one was 380? Uh, it's, chances are you can look at those, the, the trauma caused that ballistic gelatin, the permanent cavitation, the temporary cavitation, the penetration, all those things, and you can't tell the difference between all of them because they all perform about the same. Now, they're not identical, but they perform about the same. Uh, for example, 45 ACP is a large bullet. It's almost a half inch in diameter, but it moves very slowly. It's naturally subsonic. You take a, something like a 9mm, which is 9 millimeters in diameter, diameter, typically about half the weight of a standard 45 projectile, and it's going to, it's smaller, it's going to make a smaller hole, but it's moving much faster. If you know anything about physics, you know that the energy created is a force of velocity and mass, and velocity squared. So we know that velocity is very important. So the point of all that is this, is that um, there are, there are a lot of really good calibers. What it may boil down to is cost and availability of ammunition. So can I afford to shoot the gun I just purchased? And second of all, um, recoil. So everyone, especially new shooters, is concerned about recoil. In my opinion, experience, they're usually overly concerned about it. This, this is a good case right here for 9mm because it's the most ubiquitous cartridge in the world. It's readily available, and the cost for a centerfire handgun cartridge is the cheapest. So... Um, if you're not comfortable with a 9mm or you want something different, that's perfectly fine. But those are the two factors I would consider, okay? First, cost and availability of ammunition, and second, uh, recoil. If I go to uh, someone who is selling guns, a good gun dealer, somebody who really understands them, I should be able to take the time and gather the information in consultation with that expert to determine what kind of all of the various and different kinds of weapons that might be available to me that I should use for my purposes. Is that right? Yep. That sounds great. All right. So let's say I've made the purchase. There I am. I've got my box of bullets. I've got my gun. I've got my holster. I'm ready to go. So what else is there? You know, you've got every, all the tools there you're going to need to be successful with what you're attempting to do. Okay. So the training, the training is really important at this point. You know, if I was going to just have a gun, if I was going to purchase a firearm, I wasn't planning on carrying it, I just want to keep on the bed stand. You know, if I could just have some proficiency training with that firearm, get some training on the ins and outs of the gun, um, how the gun works, what makes it work, some basic understanding of how ammunition works, you know, what is the firing sequence of the cartridge, how does all that work, uh, the difference between full metal jacket ammo, which is primarily should be used for practice, and hollow points, which is defensive ammunition, I understand. If I can understand those basic things, I'm good. And then if I have some proficiency training and I understand the three rules of gun safety, keeping the gun pointed in a safe direction at all times, always keeping your finger off the trigger until you're ready to shoot and always keeping the gun loaded until you're ready to use it, um, then I can always work on my marksmanship. So that's probably an eight-hour course, right? And then I should be good to go with some continuing education, some training, and also making sure I keep refreshed and updated on any changes in the laws, okay? Um, 
you know, your local sheriff is a good resource for what are the laws here? What can I do with a firearm? What's legal? What's not legal? Now, if you were going to take it to the next level and, and do some and carry your firearm for defense purposes, that's terrific. That's going to require much more extensive training. Now, what I usually do when I run people through a wear and carry class here in Maryland, since it's 16 hours of training, I always train to a standard. I'm not interested in signing certificates so people can achieve things. I really want them to have some real training. In Maryland, it's, it's only, you're only required to do 25 shots for wear and carry. That's the state requirement. So that's, that's not, not good. Yeah, that's, that's not, not very much. Good. 200 rounds is what I do, and I do it in the range where the targets will edge and face. So in other words, the target can be programs where you're looking down range at the edge of the target, and then it faces you for three seconds. And in three seconds' time, I want you to draw from the holster, place accurate shots on the target, three shots. Okay, and we do that repeatedly over and over. We do that. We do a 50-round drill where we're shooting at 5, 7, 9, and 12-yard distances with the targets edging and facing each time. And then, um, we do, like I said, it's a 50-round course of fire. We run that four times. You take your best target. Your target is graded. And that way you're getting a lot of chances to practice drawing from the holster and placing shots accurately on target in a hurry under a time constraint. So I only explain all that or tell you that story because that illustrates my idea of wear and carry training. Because if you're going to strap a gun on your waist and carry it in outside the waistband holster, you need some skills. You need to be able, number one, to draw that gun safely from that holster without hurting yourself or somebody else unintentionally. And then you have to be able to, you know, maybe you have to, that involves clearing a garment away from the holster before you grab the gun, maybe. And then, you know, the, the last part of that will be reholstering the gun. You make sure you want to do that, make sure you, you do, you're doing that safely. Making sure your finger isn't on the trigger until you're ready to shoot, that's very important. If you pull the gun straight up out of the holster and it's pointing down the, at the ground, if your finger's on the trigger, you could you could hurt yourself. So you want to make sure that you're not placing your finger on the trigger until you've got your sights lined up and you're on target. That's kind of the next step in my mind. And once you have uh, the equipment, once you have the mindset, getting the appropriate training for whatever your application may be. And it sounds like that training is not only understanding what to do, but taking the time to actually use the firearm and gain a tactile or a muscle memory and training to understand what it is that you're doing and getting enough repetition in that so that you can do it safely and consistently, not just understanding how it's done, but really being able to do it. Oh, yeah, 100%, because we all we know that there are some things that will happen to Jim when he's under duress, when he's in a fight, okay? happens to all of us, and we don't have much control on those things. One of the first things that naturally happens to you is that the blood in your body will go to your large muscle groups, because guess what? Your body is equipping itself to flee, okay? Because the large muscle groups are in your in your rear end and in your legs, okay? And I'm, and I'm here to tell you that maybe running is your best is your best solution at that moment in time, okay? But as a consequence of that, you have less blood going to your smaller muscle groups, so your fine motor skills will start to diminish. So things like manipulating safeties, picking up shells off the ground that you may have dropped, those things are going to be very difficult for you to do. The only way to mitigate that is, is with what you just explained 100% is, is through training, repetitions where it becomes muscle memory. So I personally am not a huge fan of external thumb safeties on carry guns because it's one more thing i got to think about. But if you want to carry a gun that has an external thumb safety, that is perfectly fine, but you need to train with the gun that you're going to carry. Um, second thing that will happen is spatial 
recognition starts to be distorted, and you have difficulty understanding distance. Okay, and why is that important? Well, it's almost universally accepted that if someone has a weapon within 21 feet of you, 21 feet, then you're almost universally justified in using lethal force to stop the threat. Okay, so if you can't determine that distance under in a moment of stress, um, how do you do that? Well, I train consistently at 21 feet. I don't need to shoot much further than that. And I don't have a, my accuracy is just basic defensive accuracy. So, Jim, if I can put 25 shots in a six-inch circle at 21 or 25 feet, then I'm good. And if I can do that strong hand, weak hand, two hands, then I'm really good. So that's the kind of standard I train to. So it's important to understand, I think, that there are things that are going to, you know, like I said earlier, there are things that are going to happen to you when you're under duress that you don't have a lot of control over. Training can mitigate that to a degree. And think about this. I mean, I could take Jim to the range. I could put a gun in his hand, start his training, and I could try to simulate uh, some of these, some of this duress. I could start yelling at you, saying all kinds of bad things about your mama or whatever, and you might get really angry, but it's not going to be the same as someone threatening your life. Okay. That's just mm-hmm. hard to duplicate in a training scenario. So we just do the best we can. Marksmanship is the perishable skill. It's not like riding a bicycle, which which to me says that if you only firearm for protection, then you need to have a schedule of regular practice. Be committed to whatever that is, once a month, twice a month, whatever. You need to make that part of your lifestyle change. So there's a very serious commitment, isn't there, that once I've decided to have a firearm, especially if I'm going to carry that firearm on my person, that I'm making a very serious commitment of time and effort and some real changes in order to do that safely and competently for two reasons. One, so that I can do it effectively. And two, again, going back to those liability issues, if, if my head and my body and my mind are not right and I'm not ready to use it, I could really put myself in a serious, serious problem simply because I have that firearm and I decide to use it and I'm not able and competent in using it. So I've got Absolutely. to be confident. These skills are uh-huh. perishable. 100%. And, you know, I, I, I do some work in West Virginia, and I see the guys that are open carrying their handguns, which I'm not a fan of open carry for a couple of reasons. If you're open carrying a handgun, and it may be within your legal rights to do so, more power to you. But, for example, um, I walk into a convenience store, and the place is getting held up. If I'm open carrying, and that perpetrator, the criminal, sees my gun, I'm automatically a threat. If he's already got his gun out... I don't care if I've got a half-second draw stroke. I'm not going to be able to get that gun out and put shots on target before he shoots me. If the gun is concealed when I walk into a convenience store, um, all I have to do is I can throw my hands up and say, hey, you know what, I'm just here for a Mountain Dew or a soda or crackers or whatever, and I can just go about my business. If he takes the cash and leaves and nobody gets hurt, that's a pretty good outcome. I've seen guys that come in, I, that come in close proximity to me and they're open carrying and they're their pistol on a holster with no retention, no thumb strap or anything. If I know them well enough and I can do this without offending them, I'll say to them, you know, um, you have no retention on your holster. What's what's to stop me from grabbing your gun? If I were to walk up behind you and you weren't paying attention and I grab your gun, who is the first person I'm going to shoot? It's not me. It's you. So um, I think that some guys will do this to make a statement. Well, I don't need to make any statements. That's not why I'm doing it. I think it's always better to keep it concealed because, in my mind, people don't need to know I have a gun until they need to know. Are there other things I should think about beyond those issues as far as caring for the firearm? 
making sure that it continues to function properly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, really, um, how often should you clean your firearm? Each after each range session is excellent. Is an excellent uh, practice to get into. Keep that gun clean and lubricated. Uh, follow the instructions in your owner's manual. I see a lot of new gun owners over lubricating their guns. Most of these modern firearms, handguns, don't require a lot of lubrication. So over lubricating the gun actually works against you because you're attracting, building up more grime, grease, carbon, whatever. So get yourself a good cleaning kit the same day you buy your handgun and get in the practice of cleaning your gun every time you use it. Um, also, you're going to be shooting full metal jacket ammo for training purposes because it's more affordable. Um, that's a terrific choice. Um, I don't. I prefer to shoot uh, ammunition that has a brass case. I don't like steel case or aluminum case ammunition. I don't think you save enough money to justify it. I just don't like it. Um, but select a good hollow point. Do some research online. There's lots of great hollow points. And drill, really drill down. Like, look at the barrel length of your firearm and try to find a hollow point defensive cartridge that works well in a similar gun with the same barrel with the, with the same barrel length because you'll get a much much better appreciation and idea of, of how that's going to work in your guns if you're comparing apples to apples. And second of all, or lastly, um, when you when you purchase your hollow point ammunition for defensive purposes, you want to go out and shoot a box or two of that just to see how it performs in your firearm, making sure it it cycles just as just fine. Um, you'll also notice that a lot of these hollow point cartridges are loaded to higher pressures. They're called plus P or plus P plus. The point of impact on the target may be slightly different. So that'll be a good thing to know in a defensive situation. So um, those are a few things. You know, always store your ammunition and firearms in temperature and humidity regulated environments. Um, you don't want to leave them exposed to rapid temperature changes or high humidity because it can cause wear, rust, and also corrosion. And you don't want to take a chance with any of these things um, if you're relying on them to potentially save your life. All right, Mike. This has been really good. There's a lot of information we've covered, everything from considering options prior to purchasing the firearm in order to increase personal safety and preparedness to thinking about what the issues will be if we're going to purchase one, if we're thinking about it, stuff that we should think about before we make a final decision. And then finally, once we make that decision, Gosh, there's there's a there's a whole other set of things we're going to have to consider. So I appreciate you covering those with us. Is there is there any kind of sum up or summary that you'd like to throw in here and as we as we finalize this series? No, I just hope that the takeaway people get from these these episodes, Jim. And I really appreciate the time. It's been it's been terrific. I hope the takeaways. It's just a serious decision that I'm making here. I should take it. I should approach it very seriously. Do my due diligence. You know, talk to talk to experienced shooters, talk to people who are professionals, talk to people with some knowledge and skills and attitude so you can you can um you can make the right choice for your whatever your situation may be. Absolutely. And one more time, Mike, tell us a little bit about your business and how persons can contact you if they have questions. All right, thanks Jim. Yeah. Uh Faith Firearms and Preparedness Training, uh we offer consultative approaches to security for individuals, small businesses, and civic organizations. I can be reached on the Internet. My website is www.firearmtraining.net, and my email is very simple, mike at firearmtraining.net. That's great. Thanks, Mike. I sure appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. More interesting and important stuff from Michael Faith of Faith Firearms and Preparedness Training. 
If you have any question for Mike, send him an email at mike at firearmtraining.net. We hope this three-part episode discussing personal security, preparedness, and gun ownership has been valuable for you. Check out our regular episodes for great stories, ideas, and wisdom an ounce at a time. I'm Jim Fugate, and I'll catch you next time. That's an ounce for now. Thanks for listening and subscribing to this podcast. Listen again for more information, ideas, and wisdom an ounce at a time. Hey, check out our YouTube videos at youtube.com forward slash at an ounce podcast. That's youtube.com forward slash at symbol an ounce podcast.